0: Romans has been considered by many theologians to be the greatest book in in all of Scripture. As a matter of fact, a guy named John Piper, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but John Piper, he, uh, he said this, quote, The greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest book in the Bible is Romans. And the greatest chapter in that book is chapter 8. It's called the Great Eight by a lot of, uh, a lot of scholars and theologians. And last week, here's what we learned. We learned that there is... Uh, all the way back in one, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And around verse 4 of chapter 8, um, Paul begins informing us about this amazing power that is available to every one of us. It's a, it's a power that is given to every single believer, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Baptist church, it freaks us out a little bit, right? I mean, as a matter of fact, if we were reading from the King James Version, it calls it the Holy Ghost, and so that that's a little awkward for us. As a matter of fact, it's the Holy Spirit is a third part of the Trinity. Uh, a little shameless plug on Wednesday nights. Uh, Ray Paulk is teaching an amazing class through the Book of Hebrews, and and this week that that idea came up. The idea of the Holy Spirit and what is it? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How can there be? How can it just be one God when there's these? three equal parts. And how does all that work? They were all equally important. All the roles of God through Father, Son, Holy Spirit are equally important. However, in the Baptist church, particularly, uh, we don't pay a whole lot of attention to the Holy Spirit. And I'm not really sure why. I don't know how that happened, but God the Father, we get. We pray to him. We talk to him. We believe in him. Jesus, we get. We celebrate him. We we watch movies about him, especially when it gets close to Easter, about his death, his burial, his resurrection, They've made a sermon series about him, or not a sermon series, but a, a TV series or a, about him called The Chosen. So we get the Father and we get the Son, but you know, the, the Holy Spirit has really become sort of this unknown in, in our culture, in our Baptist culture, particularly. And so who is the Holy Spirit? What is the role? In chapter eight, throughout chapter eight, Paul just really intently digs into the value of Holy Spirit, as a matter of fact, um, a guy named Francis Chan wrote a book about the Holy Spirit, and he titled the book The Forgotten God. And so, today, we're going to lean in really heavy into the Holy Spirit and um, what the Bible, and particularly Paul, is teaching about this. And so, uh, again, we'll be in Romans chapter 8, and I want to paraphrase real quick for us verses 4 through 11, because again, Paul started talking. Uh, in verse 4 about the Holy Spirit. So I want to do paraphrase verses 4 through 11, and then we'll jump into chapter 12. This is where we're going to be today. So verse 4. So to kind of paraphrase verse 4 for you, the Holy Spirit is fulfilling in you the demands uh, of of the law summed up in love, okay? So the Holy Spirit is fulfilling in you the demands that the law of God summed up in love, Verse six, if you will, the power of the Holy Spirit in you gives you life and peace. Verse seven and eight, apart from the Holy Spirit, you are in bondage to the flesh and cannot please God. Uh, Verse nine, but you are not in the flesh. My spirit is in you and you are the possession of God's son, Jesus Christ. And then in verses 10 and 11, summarizing what Paul said is he says, my spirit in you will one day give life to your mortal bodies in the resurrection. And so today we are going to pick up in verse 12 as we let the word of God dive into us. So what comes next is significant. I mean, this is really, really important in the life of the believer. And you've, you've heard me say before um, that I I think that a, a person who is in Christ, a person who is truly saved will not doubt their salvation now, we always will doubt our goodness, okay? Like we, we know that on our best day, we, we, we blow it. We mess it up. We don't get it right. But what the word of God is about to teach us today is about the security of the believer because of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most significant roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. And we're gonna talk about all of these things today. So it's significant because in the first, uh, there's, there's Paul's gonna talk about the... Um, The distinguishing marks that the Spirit gives to the life of the believer. There's these these roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. If you're saved, we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God coming to live in every one of us. And Paul, Paul is going to talk about two major consequences of his indwelling presence in these verses. The first came at the end of last week's text when he said that because of the Spirit, we receive life. There will be a day that at the resurrection, we will, we will receive these new resurrected bodies that we will have life and there is life beyond here. And, and the Holy Spirit not only gives us life uh, beyond here, but the Holy Spirit gives us life in the here and now that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to become witnesses for God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to walk through deep, dark, difficult days because it is through His presence in us that we are able to even handle some of the difficulties in life, right? So it's the Holy Spirit that is at work. In today's text, we're gonna learn about the second consequence, really, of the indwelling's uh, presence of the Holy Spirit. So verse 12, in verse 12, let's let's read real quick. It says that, so then, so then what? So then is like, therefore, it makes us look back. So then, brothers, we are what? Debtors, and we're gonna unpack that word here in just a second, but we are debtors because of everything that he just said, because of this, reality that all believers are now indwelled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. He said, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So verse 12, Paul begins by saying, so then. So then. Remember last week we read again that Paul wrote in verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation, remember is, um, it's, it's a form of the word condemned, which is a building term. And when a building is condemned, it literally means it's not fit for use. We talked about that last week. And then what God does when he comes in and he saves us is he takes the condemned sticker off and he puts uh, another sticker on us. And the word, the, the sticker that he puts on us is sold, that we were bought with a price, that we now belong to someone else, that our life is not our own. It belongs to him. Now, here is what the enemy whispers, right? The enemy does whisper to us that you're unfit for use. That's, that's where the condemnation or more of the conviction comes in. We know what we've done. We know how we think. We know what we've said. We know what we've maybe possibly typed in an email or something that possibly we have typed in a text message or something that we have typed on social media. We know ourselves. And so sometimes we feel conviction. The enemy takes the conviction that we feel and he says, see, you're unfit for use. God can't use you. I don't even know why you bother going to church. He ain't going to change you. And so that's what the enemy does. The enemy comes in and makes us feel convicted in that we are unfit for use. Why? Because he wants us to quit following. He wants us to quit pursuing. He wants us to give up. Because if we give up, then the the, the gospel of Jesus cannot be proclaimed in all the earth. If he can get us to give up and just give into the flesh, then we begin to do things that would tear down the glory of God and not lift it up. But God in his grace, again, he removed the condemned sticker and he slapped on us a sold sticker. Because again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what does Paul remind us? He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Look at what he says in verse 20, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, that sounds super easy, but we all know it's difficult to do. So Paul would say, so then, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, but to live according. We're we're not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, what does that word debtor mean? Um, The Greek word for debtor, Is Ophelites, and here's what it means. It gives us a better translation and a better understanding. Like when we pull apart the Greek word, and here's what it means. It means obligated. You ever been obligated to do something? You're obligated to do things every day. If you have a job, you are obligated to show up on time. Or you might be looking for another job. You are obligated if you have uh, a debt. Like if you have a mortgage, you know what you're obligated to do? You're obligated to pay your mortgage. Because if you don't, they come and get your house. If you have a car, you are obligated to pay your car payment because if you don't, they will come and get your car. We all understand obligations. And so here's the definition of obligation. It is an act or a course of action to which a person is morally or legally bound, a duty or commitment. So there's a legal part of, there's a legal term for obligation can mean a legal matter or it can mean a moral matter. So legally, we are obligated not to kill other people, right? That's an obligation that we all have. If you violate the obligation, bad things happen to you. We're morally uh, obligated to not kill other people, right? There's, there's something that we understand. We know that there are moral obligations. We, sh- we know that we shouldn't lie to people. We know that we shouldn't gossip about people. We have moral obligations. But there's also a third type of obligation when you look up the definition of obligation. There is an obligation that is a debt of gratitude for a service or a favor you ever you ever had somebody do something kind for you i mean they just you didn't you didn't ask they just showed up one day and when they show up they did something kind for you and then kind of our response out of that when someone has been kind to us when someone has done something for us when they are in need we feel within us sort of this out of love and gratitude for them we feel this obligation to help him. And it's not, a, it's not an obligation in the way we would think about something legally. It's not that kind of obligation. We feel an obligation out of love and gratitude for the things that they've done for us that I feel obligated to go help them, and I want to. And so what Paul says is, he says, so then we are, ded- we are debtors or we are obligated not to the flesh. Why? Because we are dead to the sin nature. We are not, um, we are dead to sin. We are debtors. We are obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So again, Paul writes that because of the life we have been given by the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for us, and as a result of what he's done for us and our faith in Jesus, and we now have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are obligated. Well, obligated to what, Paul? Paul? It is not to share the gospel as it was back in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. We would think, "Oh, okay, well, I'm obligated to tell people about Jesus. That's not the obligation that Paul is talking about here. That would be easy if that were it. But Paul's not saying you are obligated to go share the gospel now in light of what Jesus has done. You are obligated to do that, but he's speaking about a different obligation here. We have, uh, no longer are, we are obli- we're no longer obligated to the sin nature to live according to it is what Paul is getting at. We are, the, the, the sin nature in us no longer has power over us. The sin nature in us we have been rescued from if we are in Christ. It has no claim on us. We owe it nothing. And so our obligation is now to the spirit to live according to the wills and the desires of the spirit in us. And so Paul, Paul's argument seems to be this. If the spirit is in fact in us. If we are indwelled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, and if he has given us life, which he has, because of the Holy Spirit, the same as Paul talked about last week, the, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that's now alive in us. So we have been given life through the Holy Spirit. We cannot possibly, he would say, live according to the flesh since its what what sin produces is death. So how can we possess life and pursue death. That's what Paul's saying. How in the world could we pursue, how can we have life in us through the Holy Spirit and at the same time pursue death in the same way that we cannot seek to get out of debt while spending recklessly, in the same way that we cannot get healthier by eating poorly? We cannot and should not pursue life by chasing things that bring death. That's what Paul's getting at. So Paul is saying that our obligation is to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question today, church. How often do you feel and are aware of the fact that you are living in the power of the Holy Spirit? How often are you aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? I mean, are you, I mean, Paul's saying here that we are not obligated anymore to the flesh to live according to the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, that we are obligated to live in accordance with the Holy Spirit. How often are we aware of the leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit? How often? Because I would say, and I think Paul would agree, that it's impossible to be led by the Spirit if you are not even aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, which could raise another issue if that is the case that we'll get to in a few minutes. So again, Paul is saying that our obligation is to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to give two significant advantages. So why do that, right? So why should we live under the power of the Holy Spirit? I've been doing fine all by myself up until this point, right? That's what many people think. Why do I need the power of the Holy Spirit? My life is fine. My bank, I got money in my bank account. My kids are healthy. I got cars in the carport. I got a house. I got lights on. I got AC. I got internet. I have Bally South so I can watch the Braves games. I am good to go. Why do I need the Holy Spirit and why do I need to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit? This is for every one of us. This is so huge, so important. And Paul is going to give us two significant advantages of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And so if you've ever wondered why in the world do I need the Holy Spirit, I am glad you came today. So let me give you those two advantages. Here's the first one. The first advantage of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, it is... It's this, it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can kill our sin. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can kill your sin. It's why I, I, I'm a firm believer, like we have all these clinics, right? And, and I'm a big believer in psychology. I love studying the brain and how the brain works and how habits are formed. It's fascinating to me. But I'm a firm believer that the only way that anybody can be truly delivered from a bad habit is the Holy Spirit. I'm a firm believer that the best clinics on the planet are the ones who are using the word of God to teach people how to overcome their addictions because it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that I believe a person can kill sin. And the reason I believe that is because Paul just said it. Look in verse 13. Here's what he says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? You'll die. Now, he's not talking about a physical death. You will die as a result of sin and living according to the flesh. That's all of us. We are born with it. We all know that the day that we're born, there's going to be another uh, set of numbers on the other side of our headstone, opposite of the ones that we were born on. We all get that. But he's not talking about physical death. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. If you put to death the deeds of the body, he says, you will live. So Paul is saying there is a kind of life. Listen to this. There's a kind of life which leads to death. But there is also a kind of death which leads to life. And so he begins telling us that one benefit of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is a, is a word that has been lost in the American church today. And I'm, I'm afraid the reason it, and it, not just in the church, it's been lost in our culture. And the reason that this word has been lost in our culture is because our American mindset, we don't like this word. And I'll be the first to tell you, I don't like it either. But in some translations, and you may have one of those translations this morning, the word that he would use is mortification. So what is, what is mortification? Theologian John Stott defined mortification this way. Here it is. It's a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil. I'm not so sure we know what that is anymore. We've All the lines have become blurred for us. But he said it's a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such a divisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do it justice except putting to Now, this is something we understand. We've, we kind of get a picture of this in Christianity, right? So the Romans, in the Roman culture, it, when a person was being crucified uh, and, and was condemned, uh, you know, when they were condemned, they were uh, made to carry as a criminal their own cross to the place in which they would be crucified. So to carry our cross is symbolic. Jesus would say, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and what? Follow me. So taking up our cross is symbolic of following Jesus to the place of execution. Well, when we're following Jesus to the place of execution, what is it that we are executing? What are we executing? And what are we to put to death there? And here's what we're to put to death. The misdeeds of the body, the desires of the flesh. The selfish desires which penetrate our heart, which penetrate our mind, which lead us to hurt other people. I mean, think about it. Anytime that there is a a relational struggle between you and another person, do you know what that is? That's called selfishness. When we get selfish, it creates problems in every single one of our relationships. And so what Paul is saying is that when you follow Jesus to the cross, when you took up, when you denied yourself and you took up your cross and you followed him, what we are putting to death there is the misdeeds of the body. And so here's what that is. It's our eyes. It's our ears. It's our mouth. It's our hands. It's our feet, which serves ourselves instead of serving God. Because why? The Holy Spirit in us is going to lead us to serve God and to deny ourselves. The When we get in trouble is when we decide that we are going to quench the spirit, listen to the flesh, and serve ourselves, and in doing so, harm other people. So, if that's what mortification is, how does mortification take place? How do we do that? In the work of mortification, we're not passive. It's not one of these things like, remember when you were a kid, Uh, remember when you're alone, like your mom, you know, dad made you go to bed and it was dark in your room. And then you would like, I don't know about you, but I can remember times as a kid, I would hear these noises in my room and they always came from the closet. I don't know why they always came from the closet. I guess that's how Monsters Inc. made all their money. But I, I can remember, like you remember as a kid and even your kids do it now, if you've, if you've got little ones at home, when they get scared or, or even if they're not scared, if they're just playing, they'll cover their heads up. And if their heads are covered, They're invisible, right? And if we cover, when we were kids, we thought about it, if we cover, like if I just get under the covers and I stay real still, whoever it is or whatever it is won't know I'm here. So we'll just stay here until it goes away. And what the mortification of sin is. And the mortification of the flesh is is not that we're passive, that we pretend it doesn't exist, that we pretend it's not an issue, that we pretend it's not there. On the contrary, we're responsible for putting that thing to death. We're going to make war on sin and the flesh and the desires of the flesh. So let me ask you a question. So Cliff Tankersley's back there. He sent me a picture. I showed some of you uh, the picture he sent this weekend. This. This weekend, he shot a rattlesnake. I think it was the size of an anaconda. I mean, it, it was huge. I mean, it was one of the biggest rattlesnakes. You could probably make a whole boot store out of the thing that Cliff killed. But if you walk out in your yard, and I see some of y'all do it on Facebook. I mean, you guys all post your pictures of the snake that you killed, you know, and I'm, I'm happy for you. If, if you walk out of your house and there's a snake in your yard, you don't walk out and go, he's so cute. Like, He wouldn't harm a fleet. Let's let's just keep him in the yard. He's not going to bother anybody, right? Like no one does that, especially if it's venomous. If you walk out and it's a rattlesnake or it's a cottonmouth or it's a copperhead, you know what you do to that thing? You don't pretend he doesn't exist. Like if we just ignore him, he'll go away. No. You go get your gun and you blow his head off, right? Or you get your machete and you chop him up if you don't have a heart attack first. It's kind of like in, um, it's like in Home Alone. Y'all, y'all, y'all like Home Alone, the movies, Christmas movies? Uh, I love the scene where um, Marv and Harry are breaking in and um, his brother's tarantula got out. And there's the scene where he's, Harry's laying on the ground and the tarantula's on his chest and Marv has the crowbar. And he's like, don't move. And, and he waylays, he misses the spider, but he got Marv or got Harry. That's, that's making war on sin. That's what this word means, the mortification of sin, that you know it's there. And because of the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit is telling me and you that, hey, that's not right. Hey, that's not good. Hey, that's going to hurt you. Hey, that's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your marriage. It's going to ruin your job. It's going to ruin all of your relationships. You need to get rid of it. And so it's not like we sit by and go, ah. No, when you notice it, when the Holy Spirit shows it to you, you make war on it. You do whatever you got to do to get rid of that thing in your life before it destroys you. Jesus would speak to this a little bit in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching in 539 through uh, 29 and 30. Listen to what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Tear it out? Like, listen, I, I wear glasses because I can't do contacts because I cannot stick my finger in my eye. But Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, he's saying, tear it out. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. Jesus got pretty radical. Now, I don't, I don't know that he physically meant that. I mean, if, it, if he really meant that, then most of us would have been rolled in here this morning because we'd have no limbs left, right? And we'd all be blind, look like Captain Hook walking in the church. What he's saying is he's like, do whatever you got to do. See, we, we play and we flirt with sin. We think it's okay. Like, you know, just like, you ever notice how your kids are different? There's some kids you go, hey, here's the line, buddy. Don't cross the line. You ever, you ever see those kids? They're like, and they'll walk on it enough that eventually you just can't even see the line. Neither can they. That's usually when life gets in trouble. Then there's other kids. You tell them, hey, here's the line, don't cross it. And there's the rare kid, few of them, I know, but they won't even get near the line. They won't even get near it. They're mortified of what may happen to them if they cross the line. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the Holy Spirit has been planted in you. Paul's saying the Holy Spirit has been planted in you. He's given you the line. Don't flirt with it. Don't play with it because it will hurt you. That burner, it's hot. Don't touch that. What do the kids do? I got to find out for myself. Ha! It was hot. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit becomes that little warning light. Like on your dash. Beep, beep, beep. Hey, you got to check engine light, buddy. You better do something about that. And what do we do? Ha! Man, that, it just came on. I'm, I'm good for at least another 100,000 miles. Then you're broke down in the middle of nowhere. That's what sin does to you. And Paul is saying you got to put it to death. Verse 14. So here, he's, now he's going to get to the first advantage. The first advantage is it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can kill and I can kill my sin. It's the only way. You don't have the power in your flesh to do it because your flesh wants to do it. So it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that you can kill sin. The second advantage of the Holy Spirit Being in the life of the believer is that it becomes the evidence of our salvation. Look at verse 14. Here's what he says. For all who are led by the Spirit Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. As sons, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I want to just stop and I'll unpack these. And I'm sorry, I probably jumped ahead on the slide. We'll go back. So the question is precisely how does the, Holy Spirit, give evidence of our salvation. So Paul is going to give to us in these next several passages through 17. He's going to give us four pieces of evidence. Okay, so this is how. If you've ever wondered, "Am I saved?" I don't know. I've wrestled with that. You guys have heard my testimony before. I s- sat in a pew, stood to sing songs at the end of the sermon uh, for for years, trying to one, you know, wondering to myself, "Am I?" saved because I would feel this conviction like I'm not. But then I knew that at some point when I was a kid, I got baptized, but did I really know what I was doing when I was baptized? And I remember having a conversation with my pastor one day and I said, do you think it's just the devil trying to take my joy when I'm singing that song in invitation, just so I can't be happy about my salvation? He says, let me ask you a question. Do you think the devil is going to convince you that you're not saved? And I said, that's a good point. So he said, he kind of coached me through it and he talked me through it. And he says, Hey, you're, you know, we're going to settle this right here. And when you do, you'll never, ever doubt your salvation again. And, and we did that night. We sat at the din- dining room table my wife was with me and we prayed and I accepted Jesus. And I have not once since doubted my salvation. Why is that? How do we know? What are the four evidences that Paul's going to give that we can know that we are a child of a uh, child of God. And most importantly, that the presence of the Holy spirit is in you. That's kind of what we're after. Cause if the Holy spirit's in you, you're saved first, The Spirit leads us into holiness. The mortification of sin. That the Holy Spirit points out in our lives the sin that is alive in us and not just lets us know that it's there. I mean, that is one part of it, but then leads us to go, I got to do something about this. So... If you're wanting to know if the Holy Spirit is in you, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit's in you. So if you're wanting to know if you're saved and therefore the Holy Spirit is in you, one of the things that you can know is that you recognize sin, you recognize the sin in your life, and you know deep down, not that you may have crushed it yet or put it to death, but you know that you need to. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is there. Second, The second thing he does, look at verse 15, first part of 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does for us in our relationship to God is he replaces fear with freedom. He replaces fear with freedom. Now, if if your kid's, I remember when I was in high school, I I was really very shy, um, really worried about doing the wrong thing. So when I would go stay the night, I remember one time I went to stay the night with one of my friends and um, spent the whole weekend with him, as a matter of fact. And I was so worried about doing something that uh, like in his house, I didn't want to overstep my boundaries. I didn't really know what my boundaries were. And so like, I didn't eat for like a whole day, like 24 hours. I was starving and I wanted something to eat, but I was like, it's not my house. I didn't really know. Do I have freedom to just go into their pantry and grab something to eat? Do I have freedom to go in their fridge? Do I have fridge rights here? I, I don't know. And I, I just remember, I remember not eating because it's, it's not my place. I'm not their kid. It's not my home. And so I had a fear that, <laughs> One, if I go into their pantry, if I go into their refrigerator, am I going to get in trouble? Or the other fear was that I might die of starvation before the weekend got over. Finally, he recognized I hadn't eaten and he offered me some food, which was fantastic. See, that's our relationship with God because of the Holy Spirit being in us. We are a child of God. And because we're a child of God, we no longer live in fear. We live in freedom. I have, I have because he is my heavenly father, I have a heavenly inheritance. I have I have parent child rights. I have it, like my kids when in our house, man, I, I just like the semi truck backs up every week and just dumps food into our pantry because I mean, it's, it's like a revolving door. I mean, kids constantly, but they don't ever come up to me and go, Hey, can I eat the food that's in the fridge? Or, Hey, can I eat the food that's in the pantry? Why? Because they don't live in fear of their dad. This, their dad, what's mine is theirs. What's theirs is mine. And they have rights. And so they, in their freedom, they just go do and eat what they want in the house. And so as a child of God with the Holy Spirit living in us, we have freedom. We don't live in fear. Third, looking from the last half of 15 all the way to 16. So he says, you've been given the spirit of adoption as sons in whom we cry, Abba, Father. And look at 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the third thing is that the Spirit confirms that God is our Father. The Holy Spirit will confirm in your heart that you are a child of God of God. I don't doubt the fact that God is my Father. It's not because I do everything right. It's because what Jesus did for me, my acceptance by faith that his payment was good enough to pay for my sin, and then he gives me the Holy Spirit to go, hey, I just want to give you some confidence so that you can know that you are my Father. So, Let me rewind the clock for you real quick. Back in 2015, I met my dad for the first time, very first time in my life, 42 years old, I think at the time. And so I meet my dad and we're sitting, we met at the uh, Tifton Longhorn Steakhouse. And so we show up and he and I, I mean, it's like, how do you have a conversation with somebody that you, your first meeting, but is your dad. And so I don't know how that worked. I I didn't know how that was going to work out. So we just kind of sat down and he says, all right, so tell me about yourself. And it's like, well, where do you begin? And so I remember, um, Uh, you know, grew up here. This is where I grew up, went to school, graduated, and then I went in the Navy. He said, oh, I was in the Navy. I was like, oh, that's awesome. That's so cool Like you went in the Navy. I was in the Navy. Who knew? And then uh, I said, but I actually got discharged from the Navy when I was in boot camp, medical discharge, and I applied for a waiver to stay in. He's like, well, why did they discharge you? I said, well, they said I had glaucoma. He said, you don't have glaucoma. This is what you have. And in that moment, I knew it's my dad. He identified the very thing in me that existed in him. And so as a child of God, the Holy Spirit in, is indwelling in us and he confirms, like you don't, you don't go, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not real sure if he's my dad or not. I'm not sure if he's my heavenly father or not. The Holy Spirit in us confirms it. And so we don't doubt. And this is one of the beautiful evidences of the reality of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The fourth thing that Paul is going to point out for us here. Fourthly, he is the first fruits of our heavenly inheritance. I remember when I was a kid, uh, we, um, there was a guy, he, he was just being kind one day as a little, like six-year-old kid running around the neighborhood, really terrorizing the neighborhood. I think he felt bad. And he was probably like, if I give him something to do, maybe he won't mess other things up. And so he said, hey, would you like to pick pine cones up, Hal Taylor. And so he said, hey, would you like to pick pine cones up? I will pay you to pick all the pine cones up out of my yard. I was like, man, I, I never, like my mom never gave me money. So for me, I'm thinking, man, what could I do with a dollar? And by the way, back in the way that day, you know, a dollar you could do a lot with. So he's like, I'll give you a dollar to pick up all the pine cones. I was like, that's a good deal. So I picked up all his pine cones. But before I, he left, so he got ready to leave. He, he left. He said, I got to go. But if you'll pick them up, if you'll pick them up, I'll pay you the dollar. And I was like, okay. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. Here's how I'll sweeten the deal for you. If you pick them all up, I'll give you $2. He probably knew that I'd just take the dollar and run. So he says, I'm going to give you $1 up front. And he says, I'll be back. And when I come back, if the pine cones are all gone, I'll give you another dollar. He gave me a down payment, so to speak. It was a guarantee of what was to come. The Holy Spirit in us is a guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. That we are, he is our father. And look at what verse 17 says. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are heirs. We have, we, and the beautiful thing about it is in the adoption process. So he says, we have been adopted. We have been adopted. We are adopted children of God. Well, there's this interesting thing that takes place because we know that in order to be a child of God, you have to be born again. But then how can you be born? And then you're also adopted. What's that about? See, we are born into the family of God by new birth, by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But in that moment that we are born, he adopts us. And in the, in the, in the Greek or really in the Roman culture, what um, that signified was when you, when you were adopted, so two things. Number one, a lot of times they would adopt um, indentured slaves, so like kids who had been given by their parents as a payment for a debt that they owed to someone. And then the kids worked for a while as a slave. And then they said, no, 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 you're not gonna be a slave. We're gonna adopt you. And then you become my child. And then when you have, then when you're my child, you no longer live in fear, you live in freedom. And now that you're my child, you also have a right. You, just because I adopted you doesn't mean you get less than my biological son does. You, you're everything. You are an heir of mine. The other thing is this: that when you are, in in the way that Paul's wording this, when you're adopted you now, like babies can't do anything for themselves. Babies can't inherit things. Babies, like if you, if, if you passed in a, you had a baby, the baby inherited your stuff. What is the baby going to do with it? So the reason that we're born again and we're adopted is the moment that we're adopted, we, we achieve adulthood in God's kingdom, that we are now treated as grown people and that we have a right to all of the inheritance. So four things that Paul gives us, four benefits, if you will, of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let me sum it up and then we're going to close. We're going to invite the band up here. We're going to worship and we're going to close out. The Holy Spirit changes two things in your soul concerning God as a testimony that you are his child. Okay. So let's just kind of wrap this thing back up. One is he changes your attitude in relation to sin. Has your attitude changed towards sin or is it just something you still enjoy playing with? And the reason that he changes our attitude towards sin is that sin, by definition, is any disposition or act that elevates anything in value over God himself. Anything in our life that we would say is more valuable, more important, more worthy to be attained than God is, by definition, sin. And so the Holy Spirit spots those things, and then the Holy Spirit when he spots him because he loves God and he he is God, he then points us to those sins to say, get rid of those so that you can too appropriately love God. He is God's love and he's for God. And he reveals to us all the things that will diminish God and make us hate him. That's the first thing. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is he causes us to see God as our father, realize our need, for our Father, which makes us feel humbly helpless at the same time. Unless you turn to become like a little child, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in those ways, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works. And that's how the Holy Spirit works in our life. That's how he works in yours. If you've ever wondered, well, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's there's one of the big ones. He confirms that you are a child of God. And he does it in those four ways. And Paul paints it clearly for us here in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So let me ask you a question How confident are you in the fact that you are a child of God?